Let us turn now for our scripture reading to the book of the Revelation, and we turn to the chapter 4, the fourth chapter of the book of Revelation, and we read chapter 4 and chapter 5 here this night, remembering that there were no chapter divisions, both in the Old and the New Testament, in the original These are helpful, sometimes necessary to read two chapters together. Let us read, let us hear God's holy word. After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone, and there was a rainbow round about the throne, in sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting clothed in white raiment. And they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast was like a lion, and the second beast like a calf. And the third beast had a face as a man, and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things. And for thy pleasure, they are and were created. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth neither under the earth was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book, and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and, lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, 
the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain, and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood, out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, that we should shall reign on the earth. And I beheld and heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts, and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power, and riches, and wisdom, and strength, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven, and on the earth, and under the earth, and such as in the sea, and all that are in them, heard I saying, Blessing, and honor, and glory, and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb forever and ever. The four beasts said, Amen. The four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. May the Lord be pleased to bless that public reading of his most holy word, his infallible, inerrant, and sacred word, all to the glory of his name and to the good of our needful and never-dying souls here this night. Let us draw near, friends, in prayer. Let us approach the Almighty God by his Son, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, who is our advocate, who is the one who intercedes on our behalf. Well, dear friends, I'd ask you to please turn your prayerful attention to those words that I read to you in your hearing there in the book of Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5. I read those two chapters together. I mentioned earlier that in the reading that in the original there were no chapter divisions. It's always important to remember that. Chapters and verses are always helpful to us to find our places in the Scripture but sometimes they can break up a thought. Sometimes they can break up the theme. Now, the theme that we have before us comes at the end of the first cycle in the book of the Revelation. You know, as we've been saying over the last few months, how the book of the Revelation is divided, or can be seen, if you like, by seven synchronous cycles. Cycles, literally, that are taking place at the same time, things leading up to the final event of Christ's second coming, his last coming, things that take place in this world, this world that thinks, by and large, that it's going to go on forever, this world that thinks that it's been here for billions of years. People in this world, if you want to know the truth about all things, We have the Bible, don't we? We're told how the world is going to end. Not with some nuclear disaster, not with global warming, not with anything like that, but with the coming of the Son of Man, the Son of God, upon the clouds of heaven, great glory, with the entourage of all of his heavenly host. And we are given a glimpse here of the Lord in heaven. At the end of this cycle, we are given a glimpse of Christ who is not only, as we're told in chapter 1, walking amidst his churches, seven churches representing all churches throughout the gospel age, but he is also in heaven at the same time. The Lord Jesus Christ taught that to Nicodemus, remember. Remember in John 3.12, he said to Nicodemus, If I have told you earthly things, and ye believe not, 
How shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. And of course, when the Lord Jesus said those things, where was he? He was on earth. But friends, he is in heaven at the same time because God is one. And yet, in three divine persons, God is omnipresent. God is spirit. And yet God was manifest in the flesh. John, now by the spirit, is penning these things. He is in the spirit on the Lord's day. The time is somewhere between 95 to 98 AD, and perhaps the last living apostle. We don't know for sure, but we know that all the apostles, bar John, were martyred. And they thought that they could banish John and put him away and put him out of his work for the Lord. But the striking thing is that while they banished John on the island of Patmos, God gave him this great revelation, didn't he? Nothing was hidden from John. And this revelation was to be conveyed to the seven churches. And having seen those letters as we have over the last few months, which John was to declare to each of the angels of the church, each of the ministers of the church, having considered each of those seven epistles, or those seven letters, and as I said, seven there representing all churches, not just to those physical churches in that location, in those locations which comprised a circle, if you were to join them all together, if you were to draw a line, but those can represent all churches throughout the gospel age. He now gives John and us who are amidst the churches a sight of heaven because great tribulation will follow. We know in chapter 6 and following that we see the great vials, we see the great judgments of God poured out and chastisements upon this earth. And the church must be encouraged that God is on his throne. We sang there, didn't we, from Psalm 99, the Lord reigns. God has always reigned. Some hold the view, sadly, liberals, that somehow God made the world and uh, wound it up as a clock, as it were, and is waiting to see what is going to happen. And then he just steps in now and then and interferes a little. But friends, God has decreed everything, whatsoever should come to pass in this world. And that's one thing we will see from this vision in chapter 4 and chapter 5 of the throne room of heaven. There is something that is essentially the same as it ever was, and there is something essentially that is different. What is different? God's people, represented there by the four and twenty elders, are there in heaven. And the cherubim are not banning them. The first time we meet with the cherubim are in the Garden of Eden when they were banished from God's presence. But now they're standing behind God's people. And God's people are before him, the cherubim behind him, and they will keep his people in heaven forever. And nothing will destroy them and God's plan and God's purpose. Now we have seen in those seven letters, commendations and condemnations. And there were some many encouragements, those that overcame and do overcome. They're, they're the Lord's. But now we must come to him and see him who is both in heaven and on earth. As I said, that's what he said to Nicodemus, the son of man which is in heaven, who is also upon the earth. So having heard those epistles, those letters to those churches, we now come to this end of this first cycle. John, in the Spirit, on the Lord's Day, same day, 
What does he say? After this, verse 1 of chapter 4, I looked and behold. Now when the scriptures say behold, really wants us to behold. In other words, pay attention. Take note, John. And we are to take note. There's going to be something glorious. A door was opened in heaven. It's tremendous, isn't it? What we will see here is the way has been made. Of course, Christ Jesus is the door. He is the one who has made the way to heaven. And it's because now a door is opened. John, unlike any other, is welcomed into the very presence of God. Why? Because of the one who has prevailed, even the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. Well, whose voice was it? Well, we're not told. We're not told in this chapter, neither the next chapter, and it's not important. But the point is, the voice is as a trumpet. It's announcing. A trumpet announces. It announces something regal, something great, something stupendous. And we're told that this door is opened in heaven. Now, John, in this vision, with wide-eyed wonder, beholds this door as it is open. And for the first time, one is ushered to come up. Look at the words, come up hither. But that was never said before, even in the Old Testament. In Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1, we have a, a vision there. We read Ezekiel 1, 1, Now it came to pass in the thirtieth year, in the fourth month, fourth month, in the fifth day of the month, I, that is Ezekiel, was among the captives by the river of Seba, that the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. But Ezekiel could not enter in. But John can. Why? Because there is a mediator now in heaven, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And we will see that the four and twenty elders, and I do agree with all the good commentators that suggest that those four and twenty elders represent, as we will see, those believers from the Old Testament, the twelve tribes, the elders of the twelve tribes. Now, by the way, if you were to take that literally, who would they be? Elders of the twelve tribes. Would it be men successive throughout? Well, they weren't. And then the twelve apostles, as we'll see. These represent believers from all ages, both in the Old Testament and New Testament. And it's the same also in Revelation 7 and Revelation 14. A great company which no man can number. These were made kings and priests forever. And so both William Hendrickson and Herman Huxma and uh, Ramsey and other faithful commentators see it this way, and I believe that to be the case, and we can prove that here this night through the Scriptures. Now, the Apostle Paul, we are told in 2 Corinthians 12.4 that he, as it were, was caught up into paradise, he says, and heard unspeakable words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. He wasn't taken up there, but he heard certain things, and obviously saw, but he never had the invitation, as John had here, come up hither. And this, again, is because, and ought to be very welcome to us, because we have one in heaven, who is the God-man, Jesus Christ. So John here is told to write this in a book. Paul was told that it was unlawful for him to write those things. But John has been told to, to write this in a book. And what is different is this invitation is for John to ascend to that throne. 
The voice which I heard, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. Well, John, his soul here, he's drawn away from all the surroundings. Can't imagine how wonderful this must have been. All of his troubles. There he was banished on the island of Patmos to behold what? God and the wondrous things of heaven and to see the worship of all the angels and God's people as it were a glimpse of the church. Of course, in John's age, many had gone up. Many had died in the Lord and gone to the place where the spirits of just men are made perfect. But one John is told here things which must be hereafter. So what he is seeing is not only what is taking place now in his day, but an endless praise of all of God's people forever and forever. The whole family of God before him. So John is confronted with God himself, first of all. And you notice there are, we see the Trinity really in this chapter. We see the Father upon the throne. Then we see the Lamb who approaches the throne and comes in the midst and he takes the seal. But we also see, notice in verse 2, he that has the seven spirits. Now, who is the seven spirits? We know from Isaiah 11. It's a reference to the Holy Spirit. Of course, Christ is God. And we know from Romans 8 verse 9, he that hath not the spirit of Christ, meaning Christ's spirit, is not of God. Of course, God is one, and yet Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Verse 2, and immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. Now, no man has ever seen the Father. The Father is not described here, just simply his effulgence, his brightness, his glory, and described in terms of precious stones. The first here, jasper and sardine, some say sardine, sardine stone. He that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone, and there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. What a picture this is. Something else you'll notice, and around about the throne, and there are, what we could say, and you'll see it now, there are seven things. I've said before that the number seven features very much. Right in the middle is God himself, at the center of all. And uh, Mr. Hendrickson in his book, More Than Conquerors, has a, a picture of circles. God in the very middle. And then round about, this is amazing, the four and twenty seats. You can imagine right at the core, God. And right before him, these four and twenty elders, which I've already said, represent, and we'll see from the scriptures, God's people from Old Testament and New Testament believers, his children right before him. And then secondly, and out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there was seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. His Holy Spirit, we see the Holy Spirit right there. And God is spirit. Are we not told that? And they that worship him, worship him in spirit and in truth, said the Lord Jesus. And we'll see later on that Christ is there. In chapter 5, Christ walks amidst the circle, before the very throne. And before these four and twenty elders is Christ. So we have the Trinity here. We have the Father, we have the Son, and we have the seven spirits which we are told are of God. And we know that Christ, when he came into the world, was fully endued and endowed with a spirit. And we can see those 
features in Isaiah 11. So, as you look at this picture of the very throne room of heaven, we see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the center, one sits there. The Father representing God, as it were. But we know the Father is in the Son, as the Son is in the Father, and God is Spirit. And then secondly, the circle, the Sardis, verse 3, and then the emerald rainbow, which we'll consider. Then the 24 elders, verse 3, 24 elders, verse 4. Then the four living ones, the cherubim, behind them as it were. And all these are around each other. So you can imagine the circles as it were. And then the many angels behind the cherubim, verse 11 of chapter 5. And then all the other creatures, verse 13 of chapter 5. Now, the Lamb here stands between the throne, as we will see. Verse 6 of chapter 5. We've got to, you see why we have to deal with these two chapters together. You can't divide them. You can't separate them. Chapter 5, verse 6. And be, I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a Lamb. He's right in the midst of his redeemed people. And we know when we get to Revelation 7 and Revelation 14, again, I say it's synchronous. These are those, these four and twenty elders, as we will see, have been redeemed out of every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation. And they stand before God and before the Lamb. And I beheld, chapter 5, verse 6, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as had been slain, having seven horns. Horns represent power. We know this from the scriptures elsewhere. And seven eyes, omniscience, all seeing. We've seen it in chapter 1. We've seen it with the various churches, how the Lord sees everything, omniscience. All this... This lamb that had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. God's spirit knows everything. And we're told later that his spirit calls men from all the four corners of the earth to himself. They are quickened by the spirit. And here, God by his spirit, and by Christ, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is in the midst. And verse 7, And he, that is the Lamb, came and took the book out of the right hand of him, that's the Father, that sat upon the throne. Now, I know the imagery is, is very complex. and Maybe we have to read over it a few times just to get the gist in our minds. But the scene is meant to convey one thing. Essentially, that God is on his throne. And all that are around his throne are glorifying God and will glorify God forever and forever. And they worship him. All are worshiping the Lord. It's the throne of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit because God is one. Although he is in three persons, God is one. You notice it is the Lamb of God the Father as well as the Son. In Revelation 22, 1, we read, we read there, and he showed me a pure river of water, of life, clear as crystal. Now notice, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. It's the Father's as well as the Son's. Now, where is Christ? Well, the Apostle tells us, and we thought about it on the Lord's Day in Psalm 110, to which of the angels did he say, sit at my right hand? Hebrews chapter 1 verse 13, but to which of the angels said he at any time, sit on my right hand, till I make thine enemies thy footstool? But this passage here conveys to us Christ's work, who 
is the only one that is is worthy to unloose the seals of the book. Now many have puzzled, what is the book? Well, the book is sealed, so we cannot know. But these are the secret things of God that will be fulfilled. The book contains the seals. The book has seals. And only Christ is worthy to unloose it because only one is worthy. How is he worthy? Well, he's God, first of all. But he is worthy as man because he had no sin. And he alone is worthy to unloose them. The unloosening of those seals is effectively to put them into action, as it were. Although God has decreed all things, Christ, we know from the Scriptures, Paul tells us, all things are by him and for him. Nothing exists without Jesus Christ. He sustains all things. He keeps all things. The purpose of the vision really is to show us the beautiful symbolism that all things, my friends, are governed by the Lord who went to the cross. The Lord Jesus, the Lamb that had been slain. All things are decreed by him. And that must mean all of the tribulations of your life and my life, child of God. Everything is decreed by God. We know that God is working all things together for good to them that love him. These things, everything that takes place in this world, are working to God's eternal glory. Chapters 4 and chapter 5 teach us one great lesson. It's this. God has always reigned. And he reigns now, and he will reign forevermore. If we learn one thing about it, we learn this, and we'll see it from the Old Testament, that what John sees, Ezekiel saw. The imagery is stark, but it is so clear from what we will see. The descriptions given. It's the same God who ruled and reigned in the Old Testament. The same God who ruled and reigned before there ever was a world before man was ever created. In other words, in the words of the psalmist, Psalm 99, we sang it, verse 1, the Lord reigneth, let the people tremble. God reigned then, when the psalmist by the Spirit wrote those words. He sitteth between the cherubims, and we see the cherubims here around the throne. What did Isaiah see? Isaiah saw the seraphims in Isaiah chapter 6. He didn't see the cherubims. Last person to see the cherubims was Adam when he was banished from the garden. But now we see the cherubims. Of course, all these creatures serve their purposes for God's glory. Now, this, first of all, should give us great assurance. As we come tonight, that God is in the midst of his church through all of our fiery trials. I don't know what trial, what difficulty you're going through. It's not just the church, but everyone in the church who belong to the bride of Christ. Child of God, whatever is happening in your life, God is meaning it for your good. I was preaching in another church recently from the book of Ecclesiastes. And we're reminded there by Solomon to rejoice in the day of prosperity. But in the day of adversity, Solomon says by the Spirit, consider, consider, stop, don't despair. The natural thought is, in the day of adversity, we might say, be troubled. If in the day of prosperity we rejoice, but no, God says in the day of adversity, consider. God hath set the one over and against the other. God has ordered it. Our good days, our bad days, difficult days, 
And we must keep that in view all the time. God is on his throne. He is at the very center of all things. Everything exists for him. And you think he will let somebody else steal his glory? God said, no one shall glory in his presence. He says, I will not give my glory to another. And it is his glory to reign and it is his glory to forgive sin, the sin of his people. In other words, as we look at this scene here before us, God is the explanation of all events that have been. The angels in heaven, John says, are they not ministering spirits to them who are the heirs of eternal life? You know, we, there are many things we, we can't see and can't explain, but God has his angels doing his bidding, doing his work. And God is of one mind, friends. He is of one purpose. And he has said in the Old Testament, I will do all my good pleasure. And every individual that he has made, that he has created, will serve the purposes of one eternal almighty God. We must believe that. Even the wicked, we are told, are made. For his glory. You know the Proverbs tell us that. That God. Has even made. The wicked. For the day of destruction. And we're told that even the wrath of man. Shall praise God. He has fitted some for destruction. Some he has been pleased to take out of the lump of Adam. And to fit them as vessels of honor to glory. And son, even as Pharaoh, for was it not his purpose, does he say in Romans 9, that for this purpose he raised up Pharaoh for his glory? Yes, God is on his throne. And as we look at this throne, we see him who can do Nothing wrong. In him there is no darkness. You notice this stone here. He that sat was to look like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. Now this throne, and we think of this light, jasper, this bright, dazzling, precious stone. These are just figures. To explain the perfections of God. The glory of God. And then we read about this rainbow and about this emerald. What are these things? Well, we're going to look at these now. If you turn to Revelation 15, verse 2. It's interesting that the emerald here, and it's referred to later as the emerald sea. And we know what the rainbow represents. It represents peace. Remember how God gave the sign of the bow in the sky to Noah after the flood? And what is this emerald sea? Much later in another cycle, it's the same scene. Revelation 15, 2. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire. Them that had gotten the victory over the beast, and over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, stand on the sea of glass, having harps of God, harps of God, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God, mighty and just are true are all thy ways, O thou King of saints. It's the same people, it's his redeemed, and they stand upon this, we're told here in this chapter, this emerald. There's this emerald around the throne, and here we're later told it's the emerald sea. Sea represents in Scripture separation. And we're told that in heaven there is no sea. We're told in Isaiah 57.20 that the wicked are like the troubled sea. But here the sea is as glass, as if there is no wave, there is no disturbance. We know green 
is associated with peace. Not with green peace, but with peace. He leads us, doesn't he, beside green pastures. We have peace with God. Green's a lovely, peaceful color, but that's what it represents. And rainbow as well. These are all symbols representing that God's people are now in his presence and they have peace and there is nothing now that will interfere with him and them. Not even their sins because they've been dealt with in Christ. And here are the four and twenty elders. And we see them again later on chapter 15. Now we can think of the tr- 12 tribes here, these four and 20 elders. Maybe you, if you just turn with me to Revelation uh, chapter 7. No, sorry, Revelation 21. Revelation 21, verse 12. And here, later on, John sees the church, it's pictured. Again, you can even read in John 7, uh, sorry, Revelation 7 and Revelation 14, it's the same synchronous scene. But here in Revelation 21, verse 12, he's describing the bride, he's describing his people, Jerusalem, and had a wall, verse 12, great and high, and the twelve gates and At the gates, twelve angels, and the names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. And on the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, and on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So what you have here represented are simply the church which Stephen says, as he speaks to the Jews that were about to stone him to death, in the Old Testament, which was in the wilderness, Acts 7, verse 38, both in Old Testament and New Testament, the four and twenty elders and the tribes of Israel, who are Israel? Well, we're told, are we not, in Romans chapter 9, that not all Israel are of Israel but they who are of the household of faith, who believe on Christ. We're told, are we not also in Galatians 3, 27 and 28, that we are the children of Abraham if we're in Christ, who are Abraham's seed. Well, they're Jacob's seed. And Jacob represents all true Israel. A Jew, said Paul to the Romans in Romans 2, is one who is circumcised inwardly. Circumcision is of the heart. These are people that have been born again, who have been given a new heart, and who worship God. People from Old Testament and New Testament, David was born again. When he sinned, he said, Lord, remove not thy spirit from me. David was born of the Spirit. The elders combined, represents God's people. And you notice it here in chapter 4, in 4b, how those around the throne, the four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting clothed in white raiment. These four and twenty elders represent God's people who are kings and priests forever, And what do they have? They have white raiment. What is that white raiment? That is the righteousness of Christ. You know that parable of the wedding feast. And here is the marriage supper of the Lamb. In the first cycle, viewed, here they are before the Father and before the Son. And these people, they have on them white raiment. That is Christ's. Righteousness, as it were. Not a righteousness of our own. That's what Paul said. We're saved by grace. Having not a righteousness of my own, but that which is by faith in the Son of God. That's what he said, and this is it. It's the righteousness 
of God given to his people. And what else do they have on their heads? Crowns of gold. Glory. And what do they do? They cast their crowns before God. They say, not unto us. Well, if that white raiment was of them, they'd be saying unto us. But no, they sang unto thee. Be glory, thou hast given us these things. Thou hast crowned us. Thou hast crowned him. And thou hast crowned us now as thy children. But we give thee the glory. Well, they wear these garments, and as one commentator says, this symbolizes the holiness of Christ. But there is also holiness in them now. They are made like Christ. But that's not the garments that they're wearing. It is the righteousness of Christ. You think of it, these creatures who fell in Adam, and they were lost. Remember how Isaiah says, Our sins have made a separation between us and our God, and even our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. How much more our sins, how odious they must be. But we sinful man, we fell in Adam, but we're raised by the second Adam, Jesus Christ. And we stand in glory by Christ. It's a wonderful picture, isn't it? Now we must be very careful here not to lose sight of the fact that the real reason why the saints are mentioned here is to enhance the glory of God, who has done all this, who has redeemed them from this cursed world, who has redeemed them from their own sins, from their own iniquity, all those from Old and New Testaments. And you see, the Lord is encouraging John here of all those that have gone before. The great cloud of witnesses which Paul speaks of in Hebrews 11. The saints of old who all died in faith. Here they are before the throne of God. Abraham, who Jesus said, saw my day and was glad. Abraham, that mighty man of God by faith. Verse 5. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. God's Holy Spirit, as we've seen before. Now, you notice in verses 6 to 8 of chapter 4 are these creatures. It says full of eyes in chapter 5, I beg your pardon. Chapter 4. Verse 6, and before the throne there was a sea of glass and a crystal. That's chapter 4, and then we read at the end of chapter 4, where four beasts, chapter 4, verse 4, verse 6, I beg your pardon, where four beasts full of eyes before and behind. Now, if you just turn with me very briefly to Ezekiel chapter 1, what you'll notice there that these Beasts that are full of eyes, we may wonder what they are. The connection is very clear, and you'll see the description is exactly that which we have in Ezekiel. And these, notice the identification is, we've already read from verse 1 earlier, Ezekiel 1. As Ezekiel was given a glimpse of heaven. Verse 5, Ezekiel 1, 5. Also out of the midst thereof came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had a likeness of man. And we see the same thing here, that these have a likeness of man. You read later on in um, verse 6. The obvious conclusion, if you come down to verse 10 of Ezekiel 1, that they have the same description here although described and has a faces like a man, but yet as a lion, as an ox, and as an eagle. These beasts, they appear to be as man, but notice verse 10, as for their likeness of their faces, they four had the face of a man and the face of a lion on the right side, and they four had the face of an ox on the left side, 
they four had the face of an eagle. So same description. Thus were their faces and their wings, which were stretched upward. Two wings of every one were joined one to another. Two covered their bodies, and they went every one straight forward, whither the Spirit was to go. They went, and they turned not when they went. Now notice verse 18. As for their rings, they were so high that they were dreadful, and their rings were full of eyes round about them. It's the same of these creatures here. They have eyes all about them. Now, in both cases, they are living ones, studded with eyes all over. In both cases, you can even study this chapter. There's a rainbow that encircles the throne, which the living ones are associated with. And you come down to the verse 25, we read, as the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud of the day of rain. Now we know that's the rainbow. There it is. And if you turn to Ezekiel 10, verse 20, you will see, we wonder who these beasts are. Well, we're told that they are the cherubim. Ezekiel 10, verse 20, this is the living creature that I saw under the God of Israel by the river Chebar, and I knew that they were the cherubims. So very clear there, isn't it? That's where he had the vision, by the river. And then he tells us that these were the cherubims, this very high order of angels. And as I said, the first time we see them in the Bible is they are barring Adam and Eve from the garden, the day that they sinned. If you just turn there to Genesis 3 and the verse 24, So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the garden Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way to the tree of life. And what is quite staggering when we come now in heaven and we see this glimpse, there are the cherubim, and they are behind God's people. God is in the midst. Isn't that a lovely picture? God will keep us in, friends, because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And then behind them we have, if you look at this chapter here behind them, we have many angels. Look at Revelation 5.11. And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders. So behind the elders and the beasts are the many angels. How many of them? The number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. Literally, when you look at this 10,000 times 10,000, it equals one million angels. And then we are told, and thousands of thousands. We can't even put a number on it. A vast array of angels and a multitude of people. And they all ascribe glory and honor and thanksgiving to Christ who comes in the midst and he takes the scroll from the Father. There is desperation there for a moment, as it were. And one says, who is able to unloose Well, we're told. And verse 4 of chapter 5, And I wept much because no man was found worthy to open, to read the book, neither. This is John wept. But then one stands, one of the elders, it's one of the believers, and it could represent all, I suppose. We all say, we know there's one worthy, the Lord Jesus. One of the elders said, Unto me weep not, for behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. This is a reference to our Lord Jesus, of the lion of the tribe of Judah. Remember how Jacob spoke to his sons just before his death. And he spoke of Judah, how Judah will prevail. How the lion of the tribe of Judah will prevail. How Judah, indeed, Genesis 49, 8, Judah Thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. 
Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Isn't this happening now? Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as an old lion who shall rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be, binding his foal unto the vine. Well, where did he do that? Friends, just before he was about to go to the cross, as he bound his foal to the vine, he said to his disciples, go and tell the men that your Lord has need of it. And they took the colt of the ass and he rode upon it into Jerusalem. There he was coming meekly. And then to do his final work and to tread the winepress of God's wrath alone. And we read, and his eyes shall be red with wine. What a picture. And his teeth white with milk, picturing health as well. And now he is in heaven. There's a silence for a minute. John weeps. No one's worthy. But one of the elders saith, weep not. For behold, the line of the tribe of Judah. You notice the other phrase here, the root of David. And we know this is Christ because later on in the book of the Revelation, as it closes, the Lord Jesus speaks of himself. He announces himself in Revelation 22, 16. He says, I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and the morning star. Well, we're told, aren't we, in Revelation 11, sorry, Isaiah 11, and there shall come forth out of the stem of Jesse a branch, shall grow out of his roots. In that day shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. What a rest God's people have. What a rest he's given us. What a glimpse of heaven. Now, the Lamb, he receives the book. We could say he has always reigned, but now particularly because he has ascended up He was always in heaven, always before the Father, but now everything that happens hereafter, he unloosens the seals because he is worthy and because he is God the Son and because he has prevailed in that most important work, the greatest work. Let me say the greatest work ever done on this earth was Calvary. And those 33 years of our Savior's life where he earned a righteousness for his people, And then when he died, the death of death for them at Calvary. That was the greatest work that's ever been done. A work which no man can do. And so he receives praise and adoration. Shouldn't he receive our praise every day? Shouldn't he receive our adoration? Friends, this is the greatest thing. To know God and to know his son, Jesus Christ. To know the forgiveness of our sins. And to have that assurance of everlasting life. His people are before his throne. But you know what? You you read in Hebrews chapter 12 that they're not just there in heaven. But they're here on earth praising him. Let me just show you. Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12. Just after Paul has told the Hebrew believers there that they're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, those that have gone before, he says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which are so easily beset us and let us run with patience, the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, 
who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. And he says, consider him. Consider all that he's done, lest you become weary, trouble in your minds. But then you come down, and uh, he tells us, if you notice in the Old Testament, as you look at verse 21 of Hebrews 12, there's a reference to Sinai, where people came and they trembled. But now what does he say? They came there to worship God in the Mount Sinai, to receive the law and the oracles. But now what does he say? Verse 22, But ye are come unto Mount Sion, that's the heavenly Jerusalem, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and unto an innumerable company of angels. Have we not seen that? To the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God and the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of the sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. See that you refuse not him that speaketh, and so on. And is God any less to be worshipped as he was worshipped there at Mount Sinai? No, he says, no, you have come with a general assembly of God's people on earth. And we worship with the angels in heaven and with the glorified saints. Every time we worship, we're told that the angels look down upon our gathering. That's why women and men, you know, we can offend the angels, we're told, Paul tells us. 1 Corinthians 11. That's why women are told to wear head covering. That's why we can offend God if we're late. And if sometimes these things can't be helped, public transport, things like those things can't be helped. But it's a terrible thing when people are constantly late, isn't it? God is there. He said, where two or three are gathered in his name, how would we dare be late? How does he tell us to worship? Verse 28 of Hebrews 12, Wherefore we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace. Why? Whereby we may serve God with acceptably, with reverence and godly fear. If God has done so much for us, should we be flippant? Should never be flippant. I don't see the people of God and the angels flippant. Do you? In heaven? Will we be there? If we have this right spirit, we'll be there. Because God has worked in our hearts now. I wonder what. God has saved some people from who say they're Christians and there's no change in their life. God has said in his word that he is to be held in reverence by all them that are about him. And that means coming on time. That means coming and keeping his day. Hebrews 10 says, let us not Forsake the assembling of ourselves. The some are in the habit of doing. But he says, let us rather exhort one another all the more as we see the day. And it's not the Lord's day because nobody knows when that day is. But the Lord's day as we see it appearing. Now I know some people were late here this evening. I'm not saying this for your sakes was public transport, I know, that was keeping you, the trains. But there are some who have no concern for worship. Look at these, praising God, worshipping Him, loving Him. If He has redeemed us, who, we who were helpless, should we not give Him our best? Every day of our life. Everything you do, Paul says, do to the glory of God. The angels do. Shouldn't we? 
God, give us that spirit. God, give us greater glimpses of heaven and his glory. Friends, love is so worked by faith in the heart, and faith worketh by love. Has God given us faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? And has he given us love for Christ? He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Hasn't he said that? You read the close of the book of the Revelation. These have the right to enter through the gates who keep the commandments of God. Legalism? Absolutely not. The law of love is what constrains them in their hearts to love him. If you love him, he says, you will keep my commandments. May we do so and praise him evermore. Amen.